0: And we will be moving on to the scripture reading for today, which will be from Esther chapter 4, verse 14 through 17, and it will be for, I will be reading from the ESV version. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of God. All right. Uh, Good afternoon. Uh, We are currently in the middle of a series, preaching series, through the book of Esther. And this is the fourth part of the sermon series. And we're going to be looking at the fourth chapter. I know only the the latter end was read by Brother Daniel, but we're going to be going through the whole chapter. Uh, But quick context. If you're just joining us, let me just catch you up really quickly where we are in this wonderful book of Esther. So Esther is told to us that she's an orphan Jewish girl living in a Persian world. A completely different culture from the one that she's grown up in. And she was raised and mentored by her cousin named Mordecai. Mordecai is another important character in the story. He shows up over and over again throughout the book of Esther. And from very early on, Mordecai had told Esther, for whatever reason, do not tell people you're actually Jewish. Keep that secret, which Esther did. And through different events and happenings, chapter 1 and chapter 2, by chapter 3, Esther becomes a new queen of Persia. I think that happens in chapter 2 actually. Esther becomes the new queen because she was a beautiful girl. They went through this process and she was chosen to be the new queen. But in chapter 3, as things were finally looking up, You know, imagine this girl who was growing up in an orphan as a foreigner in a foreign land. She becomes the queen of this powerhouse. As things were finally looking up for Esther, as things were getting more comfortable and safe for Esther, she finds herself quickly stuck in an age-old hatred between her people and the Amalekites. When Haman, the descendants of Amalekites, offers the king of Persia a large sum of money. And all he asks is that at the end of it, that he he's given uh, permission to get rid of a group of people who are not following, who are following different set of rules. The king, without even asking questions, he says, of, uh, ten thousand silvers of ten thousand talents of silver. I'm good. Let's do this. And chapter three comes to an end with a new decree being written against God's people in Persia and the king and Haman sharing a celebrational, ce- celebrational drink. That was chapter 3. Today we're going to be chapter 4, and, and, and if you have your Bibles, just open it up and we'll walk, I'll walk you guys through it. In verse 1, this decree, this new decree is made. And when it is made official and sent to all different towns of Persia, the news finally reaches Mordecai, right, the, the, the cousin of Esther. And Mordecai reacts, obviously, with great emotion when he hears. And all he's thinking is this personal conflict. Remember in chapter 3, there was this personal conflict between Haman and Mordecai. And and for whatever reason, Mordecai decides, "I'm I'm not going to pay tribute to Haman. And now Mordecai realizes personal conflict that exists between him and Haman has brought the entire Jewish people onto the blank of extinction. Right? Imagine how Mordecai must have felt finding out he's involved in this drama. And who, by his whatever reason, right, he decides, I'm not going to bow down to this man, Haman. Right? And because of his pigot headed uh, pride or royalty to principle, brought this disaster not merely on himself, but also on the whole race of Jewish people. Obviously, the punishment... Uh, that, is, that is sent out by Haman is grossly out of proportion to the crime. And it's clear that Haman is using this opportunity for his political gain to get rid of uh, the Jewish people. It's obviously there was a, a, this anti-Jewish sentiment that was around in this empire. So Mordecai responds, to the, the author tells us in chapter 4, Mordecai responds to this great trage- trage- tragedy by putting on sackcloth and ashes. This was a very common way of people back in those days grieved, showed their grief, right? In Numbers 14 tells us Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes when they heard the people wanted to return to Egypt because they were scared of the Canaanites and and refused to enter the land that God had promised them, right? So they, they tear off their clothes, they put on sackcloth and ashes to show their grief. So this is a very common way, not only for Israelites, but people back in those days. So now Mordecai, having put on this sackcloth and ashes, he makes his way towards the king's gate, hoping to maybe meet the king or the officials to convince them otherwise. But he was denied access. He's denied entrance. And this tragic news spreads throughout the empire. That's what the text says in verse 2 and 3. And Jews all over react the same way that Mordecai did by putting on sackcloth. And ashes. And author tells us in verse three that there was what great mourning, fasting, weeping, and wailing. This is important. You see, this exact phrase that we find in verse three with fasting, weeping, and wailing occurs in exact exact same manner in another book, another Old Testament book, Joel chapter two verse twelve. Right? Many scholars believe. Right, this is no coincidence, that this phrase works, the phrase that we find in our passage today and the phrase that we find in Joel 2, they work as a link between these two books. Listen to one commentator, and I, I'll quote, The author of Esther tells this episode, of, episode of, this, of, of this story using an elusive echo of Joel 2, placing the readers of Esther 4 in a field of whispered or unstated co- correspondences between the events of this chapter and the words of prophet in Joel 2. What this commentary is saying is this, this, this link between Esther 3 and Joel 2 is really author trying to tell us something beyond what's stated up front. This means in the threat of impending judgment, really what the Lord commands his people in Joel 2, 12, 14, is this? This is Joel 2. I'll read for us. It. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows he may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. And so for the original audience of Esther, they would have been they would all have been very familiar with with the passage in Joel chapter 2. So, so not in so many words. The author of Esther wants the audience to know that this incident that the Jewish people in, per, in Persia is facing isn't simply one evil man's plot against innocent group of people. Right? It, is, it, it, it isn't simply this rivalry between Haman and Mordecai. It is also an occasion for God's people living in exile to turn from their sinful ways and return to the Lord. there's more in the picture, there's more in the story God who may relent and, and, and relent from sending calamity in Joel chapter two verse 14, Joel says, "Who knows that he may turn and have pity Esther our passage Esther 4:14 4, Mordecai challenges Esther by saying, who knows, same phrase, but that you may have come to royal position for such a time as this. You see the, 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 the literary link between Esther 4 and Joel 2, right? Esther being the queen of Persia is not there by accident or just because she's a beautiful girl. It is not some nice fairy tale. But what the Mordecai says, it could be a way for the Lord to have pity on his people. So again, this isn't just simply about an evil man wanting to annihilate a whole group of innocent people. It isn't simply about generations of hatred between two opposing nations. Although both realities are in play in our passage, the greater reality that we have to see from the author's work is that God's people find themselves... In this predicament, because, to borrow the words of Joel, they have rendered their garments, but not their hearts. They have rendered their garments, but not their hearts. And that's precisely, if you read throughout the books of Old Testament, prophets and stories, that's precisely God's main issue, Yahweh's main problem with his people. I think Amos 5.21 sums it up well. This is really God's problem with his people. Amos 5.21, Amos says, and this is God speaking through prophet Amos to his people. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. I take no delight in your worship. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. He says, bring all your offerings, do all these religious things. I'm not going to accept them. In fact, I hate these things. And he says, take away from me the noise of your songs. Sing all you want, but I will not hear these songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What, 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 what Yahweh is saying is, yeah, you could do all of these religious activities. You could bring these offerings. You can play these harps and play the guitar. Yet, unless you render your heart, not just your garments, unless there is true justice and true righteousness being lived out in your life, unless you treat your orphans and widows and foreigners with some sense of dignity and love, none of these things I want. That's really God's problem. And so God says, I want justice. I want you to treat people that have no way to pay you back with dignity and love and care. Right? To love your neighbor as yourself. So one of the first things I feel like chapter 4 uh, is speaking to us. Friends, we have to have courage to look at our circumstances soberly. Let me, let me explain. I want to be very clear. Not every challenge, problems, struggles in your life are a result of our disobedience. We know that. We say that every week. There are broken people. The world that we live in is a broken place. Just a lot of wrong things are happening all around us. Result of sin. Yet that doesn't mean we are always innocent. Let me go to the other side. That doesn't mean we are always innocent, right? In fact, many of our problems and challenges that we face that you are facing today, are often related to our attitude and our heart towards God as well. Sure, not every, not every challenge, every issue, every suffering is a result of our disobedience, yes. But also that doesn't mean we are innocent in every challenge, every suffering, every problem that we're facing. We're not simply innocent. The challenges we're facing at home, at work, at school, wherever those areas of challenges... Yes, we're surrounded by broken people with broken realities. But could it be that we also need to be restored in our understanding of who God is? We, all, we need to be restored in our, in our sense of all of God. That's been the theme of our, our community in 2022. This restoring the theme, the all of who God is. Could it be that it is also an opportunity for us to be, come to the Lord in repentance and weeping? in seeking and lamenting I mean here in our passage right God's people all over the empire begin to fast because they're not simply lamenting the fact that there is a expiration date of on their life They're they're lamenting the fact that because they realize, yeah, we're in this trouble because of this man Haman, but we also realize we have been wrong in exile. There's, There's reason why we're in exile. There's reason why we're facing these challenges. We're not home. We're away. It doesn't justify Haman's evil plot. No, yet, again, God's people, they realize they've also done wrong and they cry out in repentance and this is a proper response we see from God's people facing calamity and facing this, this challenge so friends this means every storm of life that you may be facing or you have faced or you will face is an opportunity for you and I to turn our hearts towards God it is every every challenge that we're facing whether that's with our coworker who is just so annoying or whether it's our boss who is just so unreasonable, perhaps it's her spouse that just won't get who you are or won't be supportive, or whatever you may be facing. We all are facing different things. Every storm of life is an opportunity for you and I to turn our heart towards God. And again, place our trust in Him. And perhaps the place, as, as we're facing our challenges and struggles and problems, Perhaps the first place we need to begin is to fast. To weep, to lament. Not just complain about a situation, not just mistrust, but maybe this is the right place to start. And again, Scripture is very clear that God is faithful. God will be faithful to His people in the book of Esther. right? He will meet us where we are. That's why we can come to Him and repent and pray. A quick note about fasting, because chapter 4 repeats this idea. Of fa- I think fasting comes up like five different times in chapter four. Whenever there's reputation in the Bible, it means it's important, right? Quick quick thing about fasting. Um, you know, we can spend a whole sermon on fasting, but I'm going to spend two minutes because I got a lot to cover today. But I would say this, fasting is one of the most powerful yet forgotten practices of modern Christianity. Right? throughout the scripture we see God's people fast not just the Old Testament but New Testament as well the church fasted yet modern day I mean how many of us don't, you don't have to raise your hand but fasted to speak as part of a discipline, our spiritual discipline here's what's clear fasting right, from scripture is not a way of gaining merit nor a religious exercise used to impress others Jesus speaks against that Clearly, right? Um, but in the New Testament, right, the the church of Antioch fasted and prayed when Paul and Barnabas were commissioned out. And and they fasted while while appointing new elders, making important decisions. So fasting remained an essential practice we see in the early church. It wasn't just Old Testament, but it was also arrival of Christ and, and birth of church. Fasting was a regular part of the body. So I just want to simply encourage you as Easter is fast approaching, Passion Week is approaching. I want to encourage us to think about fasting. Maybe not a whole week. Maybe not. Maybe not a whole day. But and, and I know there are different types of fasts, like media fast. You know, social media fast. There's Daniel fast. All these different like Christian diet. But but maybe um, just. One day, maybe one week, a meal a day, we as a community can really be intentional. You know, we only, we only have maybe three more weeks until this Lent. I want to encourage you guys. This is, just as praying is important, just as reading scripture is important, just as meeting together is important, fasting has not been discontinued. We just don't do it because it's really hard. It's really difficult. We don't like it, Right. Uh, but again, there are lots of ways to do it, but medically, if you could, if you fast a meal and still survive, I think most of us can. I want to encourage you guys to think about, you know, incorporating fasting into spiritual discipline. Um, so back to the story. Got it? Good? Raise your hand if you're going to do it. Thank you. They All right, you guys are all committed to it. All right, great. Um, Back to the story. Verse 4. We're only on verse 4, and I've done like 20 minutes. So I'll, I'll go quickly. Esther hears through her servants this devastating news. Because Esther has no idea. Right? Mordecai just found out, and Mordecai is grieving, and Esther somehow hears that Mordecai is grieving. So through the servant, she sends a servant to find out what's going on with Mordecai, what's going on with my cousin. And Mordecai tells Esther through this servant the details of how Haman has offered the king, 10,000 talents of silver, right? In order to let him annihilate the groups of Jews in the empire, right? So he tells her, so Mordecai tells Esther, hey, you got to approach the king. You're the queen. King may listen to you. You got to approach the king and beg for your own people. Mordecai actually commands her to do this. And, and verse 10 tells us Esther is, is paralyzed by fear right and she replies to through the servant tells Mordecai she is no longer routinely seeing the king and every official in the court in the king's court knows that no one can enter the king's presence uninvited even the wife of the king if they come uninvited and the king doesn't like the fact that they've approached the king king can get them executed on the spot this was a very clear rule And so unless the king welcomes an uninvited person, the person is risking their lives by going to the king uninvited. There was a, a, a whole procedure of seeing the king. I mean, could you imagine how Esther must have felt by hearing this news, right? Her whole life, she's done everything her cousin Mordecai has asked her to do. She's agreed to come to Susa. She's agreed to keep her Jewish identity secret from people. Right, she's continued to support her cousin Mordecai even after becoming the king. Mordecai has uh, has given a role in the temple in the the temple gates because in the city gates because of Esther's influence. That's what most commentators believe, right? So she's been really supportive. She's been really obedient to everything that Mordecai has led her, right? Has has uh, taught her to do. And just as she feels finally feels safe and comfortable, right? She's now the queen, right? She's established herself. She's being asked to risk everything, risk her whole thing that she has. She has a nice setup now. She's able to live in the city, able to, you know, live as a queen. And all, and not to mention, all the odds are stacked against her, right? She has no idea how she will be received by the king going uninvited. She has no idea how the king will react when he finds out she's not a Persian, but she's a Jew. In not too many words, she tells her cousin in verse 10, I, can't, I cannot do this. You, you know, I've listened to you all my life. I just, this won't be able to work. I won't be able to do it. And Mordecai, through the, the servant in verse 14, warns Esther. It's like a warning. Strong language here. And he basically tells Esther, if you remain silent, you're going to perish. And God would raise up another to save his people. Esther, don't think you're the only one God can raise up. God will raise up someone else if you don't obey. But then he goes, who knows, but that you have become the queen of Persia for such time as this. Perhaps who knows? Mordecai is saying, he's not saying 100%, but he's like, who knows that this is the reason why God has placed you where you are. And then Mordecai encourages her, right? One, he says, our God will deliver. He's going to deliver you, right? Whether you, whether you decide to do it or someone else, he's going to deliver us. And again, he, he says, this is not your battle. God's going to fight for us. So verse 15 and 16, uh, the, the message of her cousin has given Esther the courage that she needs. And this is her defining moment. Verses 15 and 16 is her defining moment. Here, Esther now has to decide who she really is. Remember, a few weeks ago, as we were doing intro message, we we said Esther is the only person in the book with a Persian name, with a Hebrew name. She's the only person. And And I think the reason for that is, I think the author wants to highlight the importance of these two very different identities. And Arthur is setting up this wonderful plot at the end to know that this will come into conflict. You see, after being raised as a Jewish girl all her life, she's been thrusted into the king's court. And now she, where now she lives as the queen of Persia. And up to this point, she has been rather passive. If you, if you followed us through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, Aster has been very passive things have been done around her she hasn't been able to make much decisions she has not initiated any action simply following the path of least existence trying to survive in this big city yet here in our passage she's now faced with taking responsibility for the life that God has given her by identifying herself with God's people See, she, So what the, what, the, what the author is saying is she has to overcome who she is in order to do what God is calling her to do. She has to overcome a huge part of her identity as the queen of Persia and identify herself as people, as, as a person of God's people in order to do the very thing that God has called her to do. Identity is the key word. Another word for identity in the scripture is is image, this idea of image, imagery. Genesis 1 tells us that you and I, every human being, was made in the very image, identity, image of God. And that's the primary identity of what it means to be human. Yet we live in a culture, if you think about modern culture, we live in a culture that encourages you and I to redefine that image, that idea of who we are, by searching our own hearts, right? By, by our own subjective searching. So the culture tells us, you choose your sexuality. They tell you, you choose your gender. You choose what you believe, what politics you want to line up under. You, you choose your race. Even you, now, you could choose your race. You, you don't have to be Korean anymore. You could be someone else. You don't have to be American. You could be something else. And also, to add to that, our geography politics age you know all of these things play a huge role in shaping our image our identity and these identities or images that we have taken on play what a significant role in how we think how we how we do things what we say right we think about this image right okay i, I don't love fashion but I know I don't want to look like a pastor. I've, I've joked to you before, I, I look, people think I look like a rapper. But really, one thing I don't want to be is I don't want to have this imagery of a pastor. That's why I never wear a suit, I never wear a shirt. I just don't like this idea, oh, you look like a pastor. I mean, to me, just I didn't like that idea, right? Because I think about my image or, or what I want people to, how I want people to present. Like all of us dress a certain way because we want, it to, be, we want to present ourselves in a certain way. I think image plays a big part of our identity. Right? So, so, so again, these this identities and images that have been influenced by our own search or by society, it plays a huge part in, in everything that we do and say and, 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 and our action. Yet just like the story, chapter 4, Esther in our story, there will come a time when those very images, whatever those images may be, can and will come in direct conflict with what God wants to accomplish through your life. So, the, so it's in those very moments, we too will have to choose. not as dramatic as Esther. Of course, we're not, we're not in this position of Esther, but we too will have to also choose. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to stand firm in, in our identity as the image barrier of God? Even if that means it will cost us relationships, it may cost us finances, it may cost us careers, and other things you treasure, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to be confident, are we willing to bet our lives on the Im- being image bearers of God? When, even when things become difficult. And I think many of us would like to believe we can and we will when those times present themselves. The truth is, none of us can actually do that. Why? Genesis 3, the event in the Eden, when Adam and Eve took that fruit that God told them not to take. You see, when sin entered humanity, one of the most devastating impact of sin is that it has blurred our view of what it means to be created in the image of God. Right? Really, the sin itself is attack on our identity as image barriers of God. In fact, sin says you don't have to mirror God. That, that's really the conversation between Adam Eve, serpent, right? You don't have to mirror God. You don't have to live under God's jurisdiction and God's authority. The serpent says what? You can be equal to God. You can be like Him. You can be His equal. John Calvin, I think, said it the best when he said in, in his work, Institute. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Right? Contrary contrary to what many of us believe. What, What Calvin is saying is idols don't come from external things. We see nice car, nice watch, nice things. And we assume, oh, those are things we worship and those things we... And then they are at times. But truth is, they do not come from apples, Apple devices, they don't come from Adidas, they don't come from Audis. Idols come from within our hearts. That's what Calvin is saying. Just as pain is a symptom of a diseased heart, idols are a symptom of spiritual heart disease. And because at the foundational level, idolatry is the heart disease of replacing God as the center of all things with anything else. And often, who's at the heart, who's at the center, it's ourselves. We're placing ourselves at the center. Not simply materials, not simply things. And this is why we need Jesus. This is where Jesus enters the story, right? Jesus, who is the perfect reflection of God. Colossians 1.15, this is why Paul says in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the very image of invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that very image of God, the perfect image of God, entered creation as one of us. He entered creation in order not to only restore that image of God in each of us, but to rescue us from the roaring power of all other images. So through Esther, what what we get is we get a glimpse of the greater Savior. The Esther in the story is not talking about our courage that people of God can have. It's actually pointing to Christ, the greater Savior, the greater Esther, Jesus. But you know what the difference between Esther's decision in chapter 4 versus what Christ has done for us. You see, Esther made her decision in our passage to act only after the threat of destruction. Mordecai says, you got to do this or God's going to raise someone else. Jesus, Scripture tells us, Jesus made his decision fully knowing that he would have to die. He, He would have to go to the cross as a ransom for the sins of the world. Yet knowing all that he knew, right? Author of Hebrew tells us, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He chose to come. He chose to die. And by his decision, we are saved. And that's what I I believe Esther is pointing to. And it's that resurrection power, Jesus' resurrection power that moves us from our set of fears, our set of challenges, our doubts, to truly trust the only capable Savior. Amen? Let me pray for us. Man, I went really fast, okay? Let me pray. Sorry, I was like speed 1.5. Let's slow down. Take a breath. Let's just spend a few minutes as a community as we, we process um, so some of the points. I think one point that we see in Book of Esther is this idea of, hey, challenges that we're facing. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are wrong with the world. There's a lot of things that are wrong around us, but also it's an opportunity for us to reflect and look within ourselves and say, what are some things we can do better? What are some, some ways we can worship the Lord better, honor the Lord better? So let's make that our first prayer uh, if you need to repent, if you need to lament, if you need to weep before the Lord about whatever you're dealing with, uh, we want to give you space to be able to do that. Let's take a few minutes to come before the Lord. If, if you're doing great and you're doing, you're doing fine, let's lift up someone else. You, you, we know somebody who's struggling with something. Let's go to the Lord for them, on behalf of them. Let's intercede for them as well. Let's pray. sitting i just want to um, you know just show a sign of just raise your hand really quickly if you feel like you're struggling with something And i just want to pray for you uh, any challenges relationships at work relationships at home if there's any struggle uh, just show, i see you i see you thank you i gonna just pray for you right now let's let's pray lord we thank you and lord we uh, there's so much all the time it feels like there's so much all the time especially our lives under COVID so much has changed about life and I just want to pray for those that are here that have raised their hand to confess that they they're struggling Lord Lord I just pray Holy Spirit would you give them courage at this moment would you encourage them once again and Lord, I pray, speak your promises over us once again. You are Jehovah Jireh. You are our provider. You are Jehovah Rofi, You are our healer. You are, Jehovah. you are Jehovah Nisi. You are our banner. You fight for us, God. So if anyone is struggling in an area of relationship, if anyone is struggling in the sense of identity, Lord, would you comfort us? Would you come closer to us? you remind us that you are not done with us would you remind us that you have greater things planned for our lives and would you humble us to know that we are not innocent in any way we may feel innocent, we may feel like we've done nothing wrong and I feel that a lot Lord but at the end if we are really honest we know there are things that we could do better, there are things that we need to shift and change in our own hearts God, so Lord start with us Start your own hearts in this place. Guys, second second prayer, I want to just lead us. Second topic, this idea of image. Um, I know there's, it was fast and it was dense and there's a lot. We talked about an image, but I just want to encourage you guys to pray. And, and, and pray for yourselves as you're thinking about what does it mean? What does image mean for me? What does it mean for me to have a true identity in Christ what does it mean to be made in the image of God do I really believe that can we just take a few minutes to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what that means in our lives and how that applies in in everything that we're involved in today as we're praying for that can we also pray for people in our community that are struggling with a sense of identity whether that's identity of race identity of sexuality identity of gender can we just pray that God would comfort them, that God would give them clarity, that God would give them courage to trust Him in this season. Let's pray. Father, we confess, none of us truly understand this grand, amazing truth about what it means to be made in your image. None of us do, Lord. Yet it is mind-blowing to know that we have been made in your image. And that changes everything, Lord. Lord. so many people want to tell us how we ought to live or who we should be so many different voices our own voice as well tell ourselves we should live this way we should be this person we should be that Lord would you silence all those voices today would you help us hear from you even the good ones even the, the images and titles that we love and we enjoy We we, we bring them to you so that you can show us who we are. You can remind us who we are. Holy Spirit, reveal to us. Help us to see. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for coming and dying and rescuing us. We don't deserve it. We don't understand it. Yet, Lord, we, we have nothing but to say we're, we're grateful for your love, for your grace, for the gospel. Just let me pray. Amen. Church, let's go time of communion.